This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. For those who are here for the first time, a very warm welcome. Last week we had to shed a few tears when we had to say goodbyes to friends. And today we can um, show a few smiles as we welcome new ones. So let me begin this time, if you would, with me to pray and ask God to help us as we look into today's passage. Oh, Father, we thank you today that we have your word uh, open up. We pray that your spirit will help us to engage with your word, that our minds will be engaged, our hearts will be transformed, our hands will be strengthened, that God, we may live the life that you have called us to live, and that we may know you for those of us who are still exploring. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, the devil is in the fine print. If you are someone who never likes to read fine prints, perhaps you have faced disappointments or even shocked at various times of your life. That delicious low-fat ice cream, where you probably never check what low really means until you realize it's a bit too late uh, and you have to buy new clothes. Credit cards that tell you no annual fees and plenty of free gifts, you might miss out the smaller fonts that say for the first year, only. And the insurance you pay for years and years, and the shock comes when the claims gets rejected and you realize what you thought was in it was not. In many advertisements, we have the most attractive benefits and leering attributes in 100-point font, and then the cost at times will be on 6-point Phone or even a link to a website with 10,000 word clause that no one ever reads. The devil is in the fine print. It's such an appropriate phrase to consider our daily lives when we are attracted by big, bold advertisements of products or quick, get-rich-quick schemes. It's an appropriate phrase, phrase to consider when we are leered by various temptations around the world and amongst our lives. Those well-paid, promising, 20-hour-per-day job that will rob you of your relationships and your health. Those leering fantasies that you have that will destroy your relationship with your future spouse or your view of opposite gender. Or the worldly mantra that shouts to everyone, the person with the most toys wins obviously they didn't put the undertaker's mantra there to tell you that everyone fits the same box. Now, world's tendency where advertisements, campaigners, they put up benefits in this big font and the cost in such small print, we come today to a very different campaign. The one that Jesus has for the world, for you, for me. He calls us to follow him and all through Jesus' ministry, if you look at the Gospels, he calls people and the world, come to him, come for forgiveness, come for repentance, come for reconciliation with God, come to have new life and come for eternal life in his kingdom. But one thing Jesus never does, he never peddles his benefits and hikes the cost. I can assure you today as we look at today's passage, the cost is in bold print. 
So if you are someone who is considering what it means to be Christian, this passage is for you as you consider it. If you are someone who is already a professing Christian, then this passage is a reminder of what you and I have signed up for. That we may not get a shock while we are journeying our Christian walk, but we will be ready at all times knowing what is ahead. So whether we are Christians or just listening out of interest today, we are coming to Jesus' teaching about the cost of following Him. So if you are ready, open your bulletin or your Bible or even look up at various times as we look at Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 27. And I'll read this for us. Luke 14, 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, He said, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Here at Jesus's, when as Jesus' popularity increases at this stage of ministry, large crowds are gathering and following Jesus. Someone might even say, he just does everything and says everything right. He's the man that heals the sick. Those doctors can't heal. Those doctors would not heal. And those who cannot afford, and even those that ends up dead, he comes and raises them up and heals them. Jesus is the one that feeds the hungry. He's been on two occasions distribute food vouchers to thousands who come and listen to him and their stomach growls. He's the one that's brave and wise. He silenced the teachers of the law and turned the law on their back and pounced on them. And the rest will say, that's the man we like. Finally, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, get to taste the weight of law on themselves. In fact, he's the one, just before this passage, to say, tell King Herod, the fox, that I'm coming. This is the man that we want to follow. No more insurance premiums, no more living on paychecks, no more fears. But just as Jesus' popularity was hitting the roof, the momentum to bring revolution was heating up. The chance for people to bow down and call him a king was just around the corner. He gave this campaign speech and is outright uh, shocking and almost off-putting. Because this is what he says. Look at it. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate everyone they love, cannot be my disciples. Now, wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus who is the emblem of love? When you think of love, you think of Jesus of selflessness. Isn't Jesus the one that commands everyone to honor their father and mother in Mark 7? Wasn't he the one that honors marriage and hates divorce in Matthew 10? Wasn't he the one that rebukes his disciples who are stopping young children to come to him for blessings in um, Mark 10 as well? Or the one who tells brothers, you be reconciled before you come to God in Matthew 5. Well, the words of Jesus into this passage was a big shocker, to say the least. And rightly so. In fact, these words are meant to kind of stop the music, stop the laughter, stop the cheering, stop the fanfare of the large crowds who are gathering and put the brakes as they are following him. 
Anyone who wants to follow him now listens to what he says. And if you want to follow him on, you are saying that you agree with what he demands of his followers. In our modern term, it would be like reading this whole clause and put a check on I agree and click submit. So in all the fanfare, you see all the advertisement, now comes the cause. And he says this is the cause. The crowd needs to reckon with what it means to hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even their own life. Friends, we kind of pause here and think a little bit. What do you think Jesus really means? What do you think Jesus really means? Perhaps let me just put this in its context uh, for us, because this is a use of semantic expression, meaning it's kind of a literal, uh, literary style used in their time and culture to provoke a response and a decision. To drill down the important point, so, one, so no one thinks any less than what Jesus wants and demands of them. Jesus has used various occasions uh, to use such extreme expressions. Let me just give you one. I want to think about, and we'll come back to this. Jesus, at one point, he said this in Matthew 5, 29 to 30. It's on screen. Let me read to you. Jesus said, If your eye, right eye, causes you to stumble, gorge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The use of such expressions is meant to grab the attention of the listeners, for them to recognize the seriousness of the choice and the topic he's talking about. This Matthew example, as you look at it, it, it makes this point that the cause of sin is hell, and so serious is sin, and so serious is the consequence of sin that we must do anything and everything we can to get away from sin. Whatever it costs, turn away from sin. So he's not really asking you to cut away your hand or your eye because you can cut away one hand, your other hand will still do what you do. But the point was clear, that you do whatever you need to get away from sin. So coming back to today's passage, Jesus is not calling people to contradict the scriptures, he's not calling people to contradict all that he's been teaching all through the gospel. But rather, he's saying that our love for him must be so great, our loyalty to Jesus must be so true, that our love and our loyalty to all others that are precious to us start to pale in comparison to our love, our loyalty to Jesus. So elsewhere, Matthew record a very similar speech this way. Let me read this for us. Jesus, on another occasion, he said this, Anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Because here, here's the thing. If we really, really believe who Jesus says he is, that he is the son of God, he's the one who creates us, he's the one who loves us, he's the one who dies for our sins, he's the one who will give us 
all that we need. He's the one who, in fact, the giver, who has given us all these good things of parents, of loved ones, of children. If he really is the one that he said he is, and we say to him, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, count, think carefully your allegiance. You say your allegiance right before you follow me. Do you want to follow Jesus because we acknowledge who he is, that he is the giver of all good things? If you and I say to Jesus, Jesus, yes, we will follow you, and Jesus' reply for you and me is, then give me your complete loyalty. Between the giver and all his gifts, you give your loyalty to the giver before the gifts. Even if we lose all our gifts, all who are precious to us, we will be loyal to him. And if all, any of the gifts, any who are precious to us, says, or demands disloyalty to Jesus, Jesus says, you have made your choice that you stay loyal to me, even at the cost of being seen as a hater of our loved ones. You know, as I say this, some of us in this room knows this tension. Where the very family we love thinks we betrayed them when we followed Jesus and we gave up the ancestral worship. And no matter how filial we try to be, we're always regarded as just being disloyal to the family we loved with all our hearts. Others in our wider church family knows the constant tension of loyalty with an unbelieving spouse. Because every weekend, it's a tension between going to church of going out as a family. The tension goes on and on. And to our bigger church family, there are those who have broken families because they turn to Jesus. I have this dear friend, a brother in, in, in college when I was uh, in Bible college. For years, he lived that broken relationship with his family in Middle East. His family tried to cast Jesus out. They sent exorcists, they sent their religious leaders trying to cast Jesus out of this guy. Well, he ended up being a pastor. But that's tough. That's tough. In fact, this week, I was just reading uh, Christian biographies of my children during bedtime. Um, we were reading a, a lady by the name Annie Askew. Let me tell you about her. She, when she was convinced of the Bible, she was abandoned by her husband and she was burnt on the stake as a Protestant or as a Christian. Because there is real tension between the loyalty to the gift giver and the gifts, no matter how precious they can be. So here's a side note. I just want to move there. If you're someone who has never read uh, Christian biographies, can I invite you or challenge you this year, just this year, choose one book, have a read, because it is a good, it's good for our soul to recognize what it really means to follow Jesus. Last year, my kid's birthday, I bought them two sets of 60 biographies each, so I got 120 of them, 60 guys, 60 ladies. We're almost done, because their birthday is almost here. But many a night, the kids probably didn't know it, but I was reading to them, I'll kind of pause a little bit, a bit of sore throat a while, but I was trying not to cry in front of my kids, because while reading them, I'm reminded again and again, centuries over centuries, how costly it is to follow Jesus. And literally how many have hated their own lives. For Jesus, many exchange comfort, inheritance, love, marriages, yes, their own lives. 
because they just could not deny Jesus. Christian biographies are great to realign our thoughts in the midst of our busy and just fully distracted life. So get some biographies this year. If not, come to our place on a pretext of reading some stories for my kids and do some good for your own soul. They've got 120 there. I'm sure there's something that you have not read uh, and you can have a meal with us. But now coming back, some of us might just say, but Andrew, you know what? My loved ones are Christians. They love Jesus. My parents don't oppose Jesus. My spouse support me. My children, my children, they learn Jesus from me. If you're someone like that, can I say to you, you should give thanks to God. It is such a privilege because that is a blessing. But let us take one, and I hope it's a hypothetical case for you. A scenario that would, would ask us this question, would we be bitter to God if He takes such precious ones from us? If He takes what we love and treasure, our loved ones, our wealth, our health, would we still love Jesus? Or will we start to grow bitter or even hate Him? God, I've done so much for you. Why do you do this to me? There are on rare occasions or moments where where I have these thoughts that sends chills down my bone marrow. So I'll think of my kids. What if I lose my kids when they kind of run, run in front of the traffic light? I was blinking. I was like, <laughs> or I blink my eye and they disappear on the edge of the corner. Or when I'm just reminded those times that I read of Christians really losing their loved ones to warlords, to ISIS, to extremists. It's happening every day. What would I do if God takes these two children that me and my wife prayed for for many years, would I still love him more than this? Dear Christians, would we still love Jesus? Would you still love Jesus if it's costly, if he allows our health, our wealth to be taken away? Would we hold firmly like Abraham who almost lost his son? Would we follow Job who literally lost all his children? Or would we be like Judas Iscariot? When his love and another love comes in conflict, he says, my love for Jesus goes out. When two love clashes, what would we love more? Verse 26, let me read this again for us. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Disciples must always be ready to be called a hater, that is to give second place to everything and anything else. But if that's not enough, signing our first loyalty to Jesus, there's more cost to it. Look at verse 27. It goes on to say that the disciples of Jesus have to carry their cross in order to follow him. No cross, no following. No cross, no following. But what does it even mean to carry the cross? Can I invite you to just think for a moment with me? Travel with me just a little bit back to the time where Jesus actually said these words. Imagine the huge crowds still following him. You have fed 5,000, you have fed 4,000, you have held numb. Just think of huge crowds following him. 
And when Jesus says, you carry your cross, what do you think comes to their mind? Jesus hasn't died. Carrying a cross is not a Christian acronym or kind of uh, a Christian phrase that we are familiar with. What do you think comes to the mind of the crowds when they say, you carry your cross? This is what comes to their mind. They see shame. They see a Roman soldier coming, put this plank of wood on them with their name on it, and they take a journey that never go backwards. They'll take a journey that as they move, they are leaving behind the identity they have lived all their life. That is carrying the cross, a path of rejection, a path of suffering, a path where you'll be shamed, perhaps even by your loved ones. Jesus calls to anyone wanting to follow him, this is your invitation. You identify with me. You carry a cross. Hold lightly everything if you are following me because you can lose everything. Your possessions, even your life, anytime. The cross is probably the last thing, the cross, if you're in the crowd, the last thing that you are thinking about when you're following Jesus because they have never asked Jesus where he was going. They were just happily following Jesus. And Jesus knew that they would not be prepared for what's at the end of this journey as they're following him. If all they saw was healing, food, overthrowing religious leaders, great fanfare. Because this is the real journey of Jesus. While the large crowds are following Jesus happily, he was walking the heavy footsteps towards Jerusalem to die. We are told repeatedly just before today's passage, Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. I'm going to read a few to you just to give you the context before this passage. In Luke 9, 51, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 9.53, he was heading for Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 22, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And 13.32-33, he replied to the Pharisees, You go tell the fox, Herod, I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow. And the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jesus knew as he was walking where he was heading and where those who want to follow him are also heading. The great crowds need to be confronted with the reality of the cause of following Jesus because many until this point, they're following Jesus merely out of material or um, physical blessings. Jesus is almost like the goose that lays golden egg as he's goosing down, they're all following behind to collect all the golden eggs because that's great. That is the one we like. Without seeing the cross at the end of this path. Now what does it mean for you and me? Because we don't literally have a cross to carry. If it is one, it's a nice silver one that costs hundreds of dollars. Perhaps we have to imagine carrying a, a gas chamber electric chair or walking around with this gunpoint just hanging on your head all the time. Because it, when Jesus says carrying the cross, he means the same thing for us, for you and me, as 
with the crowd. To follow Jesus is to be willing to lose everything. It may not mean that you will actually lose your house, your family, your loved ones, your, your money. It, it may not. But it means that you can and it is possible for the gospel. The cross may mean for us suffering willingly for the sake that others might get to hear the gospel, giving out your time, your energy, going for a mission trip, giving out vacation, perhaps giving out your vocation to be missionaries, to be um, gospel workers, to tell people about Jesus. Carrying the cross may mean suffering because we now become an open target or ridicule or rejection of opposition. Carrying the cross may mean suffering by regularly denying the worldly desires that we have. It could even mean giving up a lucrative job or promotion because it means compromising our Christian identity. It could mean battling the sinful desires or sinful unwanted passions because we have sworn our allegiance to Jesus. Carrying our cross is basically identifying with Jesus, wearing a uniform, putting the crest, carrying the flag of a king who bears cross himself. And when we do that, we become a natural target of those who do reject Jesus and those who despise his cross. If you don't wear it, nobody sees you. You wear it, everybody knows you. Everything that rejects God and his kingdom looks at you when you become a Christian. Now we may ask this question by now, why do we even want to carry our cross? Maybe it's not a good deal. Why do it? Why identify with Jesus and live and follow him? And let me give you the reason this. The reason is because Jesus loves you and loves me. The very reason when we read this, he's walking to Jerusalem is so that he can put on his back your sin and my sin. And he says, this is my stuff and my cross to bear. That's the reason why we follow Jesus. Because while we are following him, he is carrying our burden and we are carrying our check to heaven. The reason Jesus head to Jerusalem to suffer for our sins, to die on the cross, is because we cannot afford it. But when he rose three days later, when he defeats sin and death, he offers you, he offers me, he offers his followers forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus is the only one who can ever say this word. And let me read to you what John, the gospel, in the gospel of John Jesus says this, John eleven twenty five. Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Those who believe in Jesus, those who follow Jesus, this is his promise. I've once asked the son of a funeral director, asked him, I've been to a lot of Christian funerals. I seem to see this as the only banner behind the, the, the coffin. Like, are there other banners that you have, he looked at me and he kind of had a had a surprised look. And then he thought for a while and said, Andrew, you know what? We do have many of these banners. But actually, I can't remember if we have others. Perhaps there are, but he can't remember. He can only remember this one. And let me tell you, 
This is important because Christians who have followed Jesus up to their grave, this is their banner that they hold on to. That as they finish their journey, even as they close their eyes, as the coffin lays and covers them, they know their eyes are going to open. And they'll rise just as the one who has given them the words rose from the dead. So here's the upfront cost of becoming a Christian when we give our allegiance, our first loyalty to Jesus who created us, who loved us, who died for us, who saved us, who promised to return for us. When we identify with Jesus, it will be costly because we now identify with a king whose kingdom has not completely come, whose enemies have not been completely destroyed, where sinful desires are still ranging. Raging, and we are not fully transformed, transformed because Jesus patiently waits for more to come to him. But the day will come, his kingdom will be complete, the enemies will be destroyed, sinful desires will be gone, we will be fully transformed. But between then and now, there's a cross to carry if you want to follow Jesus. Now, Jesus continued his declaration with two illustrations for the crowd and for us. If you look on, one speaks about a person. He wants to build a tower. He must, Jesus says he must sit down, count the cost, then make the decision whether he will build the tower, count the cost, decide otherwise what you put in will be undone, and it's all foolishness. The second illustration speaks about a king. He must sit down as well, consider carefully his decision, before deciding if you go into a battle or just make peace long before the war arrives. And now here's the point for both illustrations. Do not make a decision to become a Christian merely out of emotional impulse without carefully considering the cost to do it. Jesus tells the crowd while he's still a distance from Jerusalem and the cross that they have to count their costs before they follow him. And their advice applies to everyone ever since that day, including you and me. Now, there's this wise advice I heard from someone, and I'm learning to live it. He says this, We need to live our lives not with impulse, but with intention. We need to live our lives not with impulse, but with intention. I try to remember that as I go to the supermarket when my wife assigned me there, get my checklist and don't look too far to the left and right because the basket doubles up. Perhaps you know the experience, those of you are smiling, when your window shopping ends up with bags of stuff that you need. Window shopping with bags of stuff you need. Impulse never considers cost and consequence. Intention does. Jesus wants anyone who wants to follow him to follow him, counting the cost carefully and making an informed and intentional decision. Let's be clear here. Jesus wants people to follow him because Jesus knows that he is the only way that we short-lived, sin-directed, sin-drenched people are able to receive eternal blessing. Jesus knew that only by coming to him that amazing great exchange comes in. Where our sins go to Him, His blessings comes to us. That's the only way. He wants us to follow Him, but He wants us to know and think carefully because the path ahead 
is not easy. It is costly to follow Jesus. But shall I say this, that it's costlier if we do not. For scripture tells us on that final day, if you're here in the morning, you heard the sermon, if not download it, Pastor Andrew was preaching on it, that on the final day, all will rise. Some for judgment, for the lake of eternal fire. Others for the new heaven and new earth. But here is Jesus' point. Count the cost if you want to follow him. You'll cause us our sins. You'll cause us our self-centeredness. You'll cause us from being our own king. But there is great reward behind. So now just pause for a moment. I want to just invite you, whether you're Christian or not, especially if you're Christian, are there things that you've actually not given back to Jesus? Are there parts of our lives where we still refuse to give it to Him? I'm not saying that just falling into sin or something means that you have never given up in, in your weakness, but something that you just say, God, Jesus, you can have all these things, but not this one. Are there things like that in your lives? If there are, let us listen afresh to these very words from verse 33. It's not mine. It's Jesus' words, verse 33. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Dear friends, Christianity is no child's play. If anyone tells you that, it's a lie. It's never a big banner that says, become Christian and you'll be free from financial worries. You're blessed with good health. You'll be away from suffering. You'll be materially, you'll be physically blessed. Perhaps even with a good, amazing future partner. You know, I get a really bad knot in my stomach whenever I hear claims like that about life being easy when you become Christian because Jesus never promised that. He promised us eternal life and things of eternal value, but He never promised us an easy life by becoming a Christian. In history of Christian missions, there's this phrase, I don't know if you have heard it, it's coined for imitation Christianity. The, 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 The phrase is rice Christians. Have you heard of that? Rice Christians, it comes in in the time where missionaries were out there and and some missionaries say, if you become a Christian, you get a bowl of rice, you get some benefits. And people come in flocks to become Christians. But their Christianity and their professions quickly tumbles when persecution comes or when another teacher comes along and offers something better, maybe your rice with some vegetable and meat. Rice Christians. This is the point Jesus says. He doesn't want rice Christians following him because you will not make it. There's real eternal benefits, but there is real temporal cause involved. And Jesus' clear campaign has people hear this. Count the cost before you make your decision. Our Lord Jesus Christ spoke in such a striking way so that you prevent any light, impulsive or misconstrued decision of becoming a Christian or following Jesus. For if we follow Jesus without clear loyalty, without carrying the cross, without counting our cost, we will be in danger of falling away. Because every difficulty that you face over the course of this year or more ends up a re-evaluation whether Jesus was good or not. Every costly sacrifice that you have to make become a crossroad whether you still want to carry on. And every opposition 
becomes another temptation to just turn away from Jesus. Because every day you are rethinking whether you want to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, count your costs before you start so that you know how to respond and not re-deciding every time you're in a situation. Because without cost counting, the danger of falling away is real. And so we read the concluding verses in 34 to 35. Look at it with me. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Salt now is being brought as a description of disciples of Jesus. There are various suggestions how to actually understand this, how salt loses its saltiness. Let me just give you two common ones and you decide. Um, what some people say is that collecting salt is an evaporizing process. You get salt water from the Dead Sea, it's totally salty, and you do some process and get your salt there. But if you do it wrongly, it will be contaminated and mistaken crystals that look like salt, but actually is canalite. Is that a, that's what it says. Uh, you're kind of having something that looks like salt, but it's not. Someone else says this, that um, Jesus is saying that people at the time, they used to have blocks of salt mixed with various kind of thing, and you use it, but over time, it loses the saltiness, and you just get a lump of salt that has nothing. But it doesn't matter whichever thing you, you, you think that Jesus is saying that they understood the crowd, we try to kind of guess. The, the point is still the same. Salt, salty salt has great value. It seasons food, it preserves food, it makes things who are bland, tasty. It, it's even valuable and adds value to soil and manure. It's good. However, the so-called salt that doesn't have saltiness, it is totally useless and it gets thrown out. And here is Jesus' warning to the great crowds, especially those who want to follow him. Jesus is saying, those who do not keep the course are like salt that loses its saltiness. They will fall away. And listen to this. The failure to count the cost underlies the falling away of many who start off saying, Jesus is the Lord, and with the same hand say, crucify him. Not counting the cost underlies many who have called him Lord, calls him to be crucified. Isn't it the case, I don't know about your experience, but sometimes those people who really hate to hear the Bible being read are not non-Christians are not people who have never heard the Bible. The people who really hate the Bible being read are those who have once tasted it, have heard it, but they have decided in their life, thanks, but no thanks. They'll be the ones that say, I love Jesus too, I hate Jesus. And I'll tell you the reason why it is. Because when they hear it openly, and Jesus is giving them warnings, now they hear again, is saying, Jesus, you're trying to judge me. What was a warning if you hear when they turn away and they re-listen, they say, you are putting judgment on me to hell. How dare you? Not counting the cost is a great danger of falling away. And those who lose his saltiness has great danger of ever being salty again. Now, how about those who follow Jesus, who have counted their cause, who, who confess allegiance to Jesus, who says, Jesus... I'll follow you. I don't think I have a strength, but your spirit helps me. I will do it. 
What about those who do that? They are like the salt, they are salty. Their lives are distinct and of great value. Like salt, their life seasons everything that comes in contact with them. In fact, how powerful are the lives of salty Christians? Have you met salty Christians? Those that, when you feel bland, you see them and you get saltier? That it affects everyone. Their faith are unfazed, they are unshaken by circumstances. Well, they face same circumstances, they respond differently all the time because they are clear that kingdom is where they are heading as we are reminded last week's sermon in Romans, uh, Revelation 1.9. Christians like that, they face suffering with patient endurance because their eyes are not looking at that. Their eyes are looking at the kingdom in front of them. They, it's tough, but they don't really decide every day whether they'll follow Jesus or not. The author of this passage, Luke, he wrote a second volume called The Acts in the Bible where countless Christians did count their cause, they did make their choice, and guess what? You and me now, we have the Bible. Their saltiness has done us great value, and their saltiness reveals for themselves that they are now in the kingdom of heaven. As we close, I want to read to you the ending of the story of Annie SQ that I gave you earlier on, who counted the cause, made the choice, and was burned at the stake. Let me read to you her story. On 16 July 1546, an enormous crowd gathered in Smithfield Market in London to watch the burning at the stake of four heretics, one of them a woman. Three men walked to the unlit fire that was prepared for them. Annie, who was crippled because she was so badly tortured, was carried there in a chair. There was murmuring in the crowd, this voice that says, what are they doing to her? A woman asked her husband. They're chaining her chair to the stake, he explained. Well, the Lord Chancellor's servant walked to these four Protestants with a piece of paper saying that if they agreed to give up their Bible beliefs, the king would pardon them. Annie refused even to look at the paper. The three men were equally courageous. Then let justice be done, the Lord Mayor shouted. So raising a blaze torch in the air, the executioner walked towards the prisoners, set the light to fire, so making them martyrs. Annie Askew and her three companions gave up their lives rather than denying Jesus. And the fire was still burning when they were welcomed in the home of heaven. Dear friends, it's costly to follow Jesus, but it's totally worth it. And Jesus' question was not to push people away, but to ask, will you count your cause and follow him? Not to be wise Christians, but to be those who are salty and remain salty. So as Jesus concludes his campaign, so shall I repeat his concluding words in verse 35. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Can we pray together? Dear Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear, it's costly to follow him and to be identified with him. We need to count the cost, surrender all of ourselves to Him and to love Him more than anyone or anything. Father, we also know that He is a King and a rescuer worthy for us to follow Him because He loved us. He gave Himself to save us and has promised to return for us. Father, for those of us here who are still mulling over the Christian gospel, we are still thinking about it, we pray, God, that You will reveal to us our great need for Jesus and He's worth everything. 
For those of us who are already professing Christians, please strengthen us and help us to keep coming to Jesus, surrendering all of ourselves to Him. And let us be prepared to keep on going, even when we face challenges, opposition, sufferings, difficult choices, painful experience, that we are already set on finishing our Christian journey, following only Jesus. To trust fully the grace we have in Jesus, to trust the love you have showered us, to depend on the fellowship we have in your Holy Spirit. Father, let us not be shocked or fall away in this journey, but rather we give ourselves to you that you strengthen us to live for you. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.